Well, I, I would invite you to open your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to continue this series through Mark. And today we're going to be studying Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. And the title of this sermon is going to be The Way of Parables, part 1. Um, because we'll do part two next week. And as you'll see as we open the text and examine it, Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 34 is a really uh, hefty, uh, substantial you know, a grouping of parables, the biggest grouping of parables in the gospel of Mark. Um, and so there's other parables kind of before it, and then there's more parables later in Mark 7 and 12. But this is the biggest chunk. And so the reason why I wanted to say that this is the way of parables is because Jesus is going to teach in parables, and his, his teaching is mostly recorded in this way. And what we're going to see in that is that Jesus teaches in parables to expose unbelief on the one hand. But he's also going to teach in parables to encourage the believers. And so I want to look at how he does that in these particular verses. I'm going to read the text in its entirety, pray, and then we're going to get to work. So hear now God's holy and inspired and life-giving word, starting in Mark chapter 4, verse 1. And he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. Uh, did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into the good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path. Where the word is sown, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for many of us, this is a familiar story. Lord, may it not fall on on ears full of rocky soil, hearts full of rocky soil. Lord, may this parable be to us a source of conviction and a source of comfort 
that you are the God who exposes unbelief, not only in our hearts, but in the world. But you encourage us as your people through your word, through your spirit. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would indeed make the reading and preaching of this word not return void, but it would accomplish its purposes. Lord, purposes that can only be accomplished through a miraculous work of you, not by any words that I would say up here. So, Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear today, that we would know you and believe you as our Messiah, the one who has loved us, who has saved us, and who has reconciled us to the Father and to each other. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this all in your holy and powerful name. Amen. Um, It is one of the great privileges of my life that I get to be a part of homeschooling my children. Let it be known that my wife does most of it. Um, more than her fair share. But I get the privilege of getting to teach a few things to my kids. One of those things is uh, the Bible. And so every morning, over bowls of cereal and slices of toast, I get to sit with my daughters and I get to read the Bible with them and talk about it with them and answer their questions. And earlier this week, I was sitting with my daughters reading through the book of Exodus, and we came to Exodus 14 and the story of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. And my daughter, Piper, noticed this wonderful detail that I so often gloss over. She said, Daddy, when the Israelites are camped there in front of the sea, why does a west wind come and blow all night to part the sea? Why doesn't God just part the sea and let them go? And I said, well, that's because God usually works through means. And she said, oh, yeah, he's not magic. He works through means. And so what she caught on, which a lot of us, and including myself, forget over and over again, is that God isn't magic, but God who created the world, who is a Lord of all things, actually works in and through the means that he has appointed. Through the reading and the preaching of the word is what we confessed in our, in our time of confession. Through ordinary men like the disciples and through something as ordinary and as obvious as parables. And so Jesus takes this ordinary thing, this ordinary teaching method of ordinary rabbis, and he uses it to expose unbelievers of their unbelief and to encourage the believers that he is ministering to. So let's dive into this. How does Jesus expose this unbelief, starting in verse 1? We see, as chapter 4 begins, Jesus is continuing this very normal and ordinary pattern of ministry that we've seen. In fact, this is kind of a parallel beginning to what we saw in chapter 3, where Jesus is teaching, and a very large crowd comes by the sea. And so large, in fact, that Jesus has to get into a boat and kind of sit on this floating boat pulpit, and so he can teach to the crowds. And he's teaching them many things in parables. And this isn't just a normal, ordinary, rabbinic practice. It was, but it was also something that God's people would have been familiar with. I mean, you can look back in Judges chapter 9 and see that parables were used even in the Old Testament. So Jesus is is using this kind of normal, historically accepted pattern of teaching. And what's interesting about this is that he was teaching many things in parables. But Mark chose to record this one. And not only did Mark choose to record this one, this parable of the sower, but so does Matthew in Matthew chapter 13, and so does Luke in Luke chapter 8. So if these other gospel writers included it, it must be a significant thing. Don't worry about it not being in John. He didn't use parables at all. So it was a synoptic thing. And so Mark chooses to record this particular parable of the sower. Now, kids, 
What does a sower do? What, what is that? What does it mean to sow? So we're not talking about needle and thread here. We're talking about scattering seeds, right? That's because Jesus is using a picture of normal first century agricultural life. We don't really have to do this anymore. We should because we get food from farms. But back then, if you wanted food to grow, you had to go out and throw the seeds and see where it landed and it would grow up in the ground. Now, what we know, what we know is that this is an ordinary picture of life. And we know from the later explanation that it's not really an allegory. There's a certain point to it. But Jesus is the word being sown. Jesus is the seed being sown. We look at that. We know that from verse 14. And so what this parable is doing, in part, is it's illustrating the ministry that Jesus has already begun. The word goes out. The word is scattered around there in the world, and it lands on different kinds of soil. And we've seen this in the ministry of Jesus up to this point in the Gospel of Mark. We've seen Jesus go and call disciples, James and John and Levi, and immediately they left behind what they were doing. And they immediately followed him. They would be seed that fell on good soil, and it bore much fruit. But we've also seen, thus far in the ministry of Jesus, seed land on the path, as it were, and get snatched away by Satan. We saw just last chapter in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, that the Herodians and the Pharisees were plotting on how to destroy Jesus. So in a sense, this parable is a little bit of a picture of what Jesus has done thus far in his ministry. But... But, 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 this is a very important thing. A parable was not simply a teaching illustration. If you read um, books on public speaking or, or, or teaching theory, you're supposed to offer an illustration for a point to make it come alive in the minds of, of the people that are listening to you. But a parable is not just that. A parable, a parable is not just a teaching illustration that's going to help Jesus explain himself. A parable is more like a hearing test. It's designed to elicit a response. I mean, if you remember when you were a kid and maybe at the doctor's office or in your school, you had to put on those headphones and you had to raise your hand when you heard the beep. A parable is designed to elicit a response from its hearers. He's not simply calling people in this parable to listen to the words that he's saying. Remember, it's bookended by this call. If you have ears, let him hear. And that's not just to to hear the actual words. He's actually calling people to respond in faith like a James, like a John, like a Levi. He wants you to be good, fruitful soil and bear much fruit. But, 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 as Jesus offers this parable and he paints this picture of the kingdom of God breaking into the world, right? He has these three different kinds of seeds or three different kinds of soils on which the seed falls and there's many different responses. So the thing that we have to understand as we read this parable is that not everybody's going to respond to Jesus in the same way. And in fact, as you go down to the private explanation of the parable in, in verses 10 through 13, we understand that the purpose of the parable in some ways is to communicate truth to the people that have ears, but to the people who don't have ears, they're not supposed to get it. They're supposed to be exposed as those who don't have ears to hear. They're supposed to be exposed as bad soil, rocky soil, a path where birds come and snatch the seed away. They are supposed to be exposed as unbelievers. The parable is not for them. I mean, even think about it like this. Go back to the parting of the Red Sea, a story many of us know. 
when God in his kindness works through those ordinary means of blowing the wind all night to separate the sea on dry ground. God's people who belong to him, who have ears to hear, as it were, walk across in faith across the Red Sea. And they're excited. They get to the other side. They sing songs. But what happens to the Egyptians? Well, they are exposed as not belonging to God. They're exposed as outsiders. They're exposed as enemies of the kingdom. And they get washed away in the flood. And this is to the praise and the glory of God. And so Jesus is saying in this parable, I'm not teaching it to make sure everybody knows what I'm saying. He's teaching this parable to his disciples To those who have ears to hear, he is saying, look, you have been given the mysteries, the secrets of the kingdom of God. You have ears to hear. This Greek word for secret, it doesn't mean like secretive, incognito, surreptitious. It means it's the Greek word mysterion, where we get the word mystery. And Paul uses that word to talk about the mystery of the gospel. And the, the mystery is this, that the eternal God became man incarnate and broke into this world the way the sower goes in and scatters the seed. Jesus comes in as a seed, as something small and seemingly insignificant, but within that bears all of the root and the fruit of the kingdom of God. And not everybody is going to respond the same way. The disciples, those who are with him, are are, are told, look, these other people aren't going to get it. And that's not an accident. That's on purpose. That's by design. Jesus is the living parable as the Messiah who comes. And the Pharisees don't get it. The scribes don't get it. The Sadducees, the Essenes, all of the Jewish leaders, they don't get it. Because they don't have ears to hear and respond in faith. So those who don't have ears remain on the outside. Remain with hearts hardened remained with ears stopped up that cannot hear. And so as Jesus teaches this parable, again, he's not just illustrating what the kingdom of God is like. He's saying, there are those who are going to believe in me and they're going to bear much fruit, James, John, Levi. And there are those who don't have ears to hear and they will be snatched away by Satan. Now, in this there are, there are a lot of applications for God's people today, but I want to focus on two kind of points for this particular section. Because if you, if you think about this section, it's more about Christ. It's more about Christology. Do you believe who Jesus is when he says he's the Messiah? And so the first application is this. When Christ is proclaimed in the world, it is always going to be a mixed bag of people. There's always going to be a mixed response to Jesus. In fact, in our, in our book of church order, in the, the Presbyterian Church of America book of church order, we t- it talks about the church and the preaching of the word. That's the ordinary way in which God saves sinners, converts sinners, brings sinners into the kingdom. And we understand that in our book of church order that when we have a church service, not everybody in church is a believer. Like that's just, we, we work that into the doctrine of our church. And so for you as God's people, the application there is don't be surprised when you find sinners in church. Y'all, it's going to happen. There are going to be people that you meet that um, are going to mistreat you. They're going to sin against you. They're going to sin against themselves because, look, there's a varied response to Jesus as the Messiah. And, and to be fair, just because somebody's 
sinning against you doesn't automatically mean they're not a believer. That's not the point there. But the point is that there's always going to be different kinds of soil that the seed falls on. So, so just get ready for it. Don't be surprised. And the second is this, and, and I think this is almost more important. Y'all, there's no such thing as a neutral response to Jesus. It's impossible. Christ, by his coming and living and dying and resurrecting, absolutely demands a response. You see, again, going back to this image of the Israelites and the Egyptians, the Israelites believed God. They were his people. They crossed the sea and he saved them. The Egyptians could have been as neutral as they wanted. It doesn't matter because in the end, they still got washed away by the flood. They got washed away by the sea. And so what we need to understand as believers, as people who are hearing the gospel, is that we have to come to Christ and we have to decide, do I believe this or do I not? Am I going to follow him or am I not? Because you can be as neutral and say, well, all religions are equally valid up until you die, and then you will be there cast out on the outside, not part of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus demands a response. There is no such thing as not responding. A neutral response is essentially the same as saying, no, thank you. And so Jesus teaches this parable, again, not to illustrate what he's doing, but to to point out that there are those who are in and those who are out. And you can tell those who are in versus those who are out by way of the fruit in their lives. And so I, I want to I make this abundantly clear. As Jesus goes about this exposing unbelievers, he does not put them on blast and say, y'all, a bunch of dummies that don't get it. He explains this parable privately to the 12 and those who are with them that, look, there are those who are in and those who are out, and you are those who are in. So even in his exposing their unbelief, Jesus is encouraging his disciples. And I want to dig more into that. What does it look like for Jesus to encourage his disciples, encourage believers, looking at verses 13 through 20? And so again, the crux of this parable, to really understand this parable, is the sandwich between the parable proper and the explanation. It's that those three verses, 10 through 13, seeing they may not see, hearing they may not hear, and that they may not understand. Jesus is saying to his disciples, you have been given these secrets. It's, It's not something you figured out on your own. It's not like you went to secret disciple school and learned the right answers. It's not like you used Google to figure out what's the answer, do I know Jesus? No, like they've been given it. It's not something that they discovered on their own. There were a myriad of kind of secret religious cults in first century Palestine that you had to know the secret right information to get into. And that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that, look, the only reason you are here, the only reason you've borne any fruit It's because God in Christ has revealed himself to you. It's almost like later in in the Gospel of Matthew where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, Simon Bar-Jonah. This is not something that they've discovered on their own. This is something that has been given to them by God. And so step one, be encouraged. This is something that God is giving to you, not something you have to muster up yourself. And so... With that being said, Jesus goes on to explain the parable. And part of it, too, is this idea. We we, we said it in the call to worship, Psalm 40. Another translation of Psalm chapter 40, or Psalm 40, verse 6, is that he's dug ears for you. 
I don't know if it says that in your Bible. It might say he's given you ears or whatever your translation is. But this image is that, that God took what was stopped up right here and he dug it out so his people might actually hear and respond. And so that's what Jesus is doing for them now in, as he explains this parable that they've been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. And as we look at this, as we look at this, there's a distinctive kind of grammatical shift in the parable. In the first part when he's teaching it, the word is Jesus. But then as he explains it down here, it's, it's subtle, but it's significant. The seed is no longer Jesus, but the seed is the disciple, the one who's going through all of this. And so what we learn in this explanation and this encouragement that Jesus offers is that there is going to be barriers. There are going to be obstacles. There are going to be experiences that the seed is going to go through in the course of the Christian life. Now, really quick, kids, I have another question for you. Tell me, who is somebody that really encourages you in, their, in your life? Kids, who is somebody that really encourages you? Yes, Caleb. Oh, your mom. What does your mom say or do that's encouraging? Oh, she gives you a reward. Oh, that's very cool. For, for what? Okay, very cool. You get a reward. All right, what are other kids? Yes. Your parents and oh, Miss Tina getting a shout out. That's very kind. What do they do that's encouraging to you, Lucia? They show up. Yeah, they show up and they cheer. Yeah, people encourage us in our lives, kids, right? When they, when they say true things that are good things, when they love us, when they speak the truth in love. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here for his disciples. He's going to speak truth to them. He's going to not sugarcoat the reality of being a disciple, but he's going to do it in a way that doesn't beat them down and break them down, but to build them up and encourage them. And the first thing that we see when he speaks the truth is, look, the seed that falls on the path, Satan's going to come away and snag that before it can deep, big, dig roots. And so the first bit of truth that he wants to give his disciples is that, look, Satan is here and active in opposing God's kingdom work. Do not be surprised when the prince of darkness is opposing the king of this world. Peter says it in 1 Peter that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion. We don't talk about that enough in Christian circles, but Satan is a real personal manifestation of evil in this world. And it's always been that way. Like this isn't the, the imagination of like some backwoods 19th century hillbilly. Like Satan has been in the garden from the beginning and God in his, in his judgment put enmity between the serpent and the woman. And so God's kingdom has always been at war with the kingdom of Satan. But here's the good news, and here's the encouragement for the disciples, for those who have ears to hear, is that Satan cannot snatch away what Christ has planted. Satan cannot snatch away and uproot the roots that Christ has planted. So as the disciples are walking, as you are walking, hear not the voice of the enemy speaking lies to you, but hear the voice of truth from your, your God that Satan cannot take away, cannot uproot what Christ has planted and caused to grow. But he goes on as he explains, there's not just a real and personal Satan that is going to attack these seeds, right? There are going to be times and epics and periods of persecution, 
All right, seeds, they're going to go in rocky soil that are going to immediately spring up. But when the sun beats on them, when they experience hardship and persecution because of the word, they will wither and fall away. Here's the thing. All seeds that get planted and grow have to experience the sun. But it's the ones with deep roots that are being fed that are going to last and not wither under that persecution. God's people are going to endure suffering and hardship. Sometimes it's going to come from your sin nature that's going to wrestle inside of you. Sometimes it's going to come from the devil. Sometimes it's going to come just because we live in a fallen world and in a kingdom of this world that opposes the kingdom of God. For example, there is a um, persecution in the early church. There's persecution in the early church. Various emperors and leaders, they didn't like Christians for various reasons. And there's this one story of Marcus Aurelius, he was going to, um, he wanted to kill Polycarp. He was a bishop of Smyrna. His name's Polycarp. He was a disciple of John. And all Marcus Aurelius wanted Polycarp to do was to burn some incense in front of the picture of Marcus Aurelius and say, Caesar is Lord. And so as Polycarp is tied to a stake, getting ready to be burned, Polycarp says, look, 86 years I've served my king. I'm not going to blaspheme him now. What that illustrates is not that you just have to be old and curmudgeonly to be a martyr, but that Polycarp had 86 years of roots growing. Homie had 86 years of being in a Christian community, of being catechized, of being sitting under the word. And it formed in him such a deep root and a deep well of belief that A, he wasn't going to blaspheme Christ, but B, he wasn't going to recant even if it cost him his life. And so there's going to be suffering. There's going to be opposition. You have a resource to have roots dug deep down in your soul. You have your church family. You have God's word given to you. You have catechesis. Parents, y'all, we have to catechize our kids. We have to teach our kids the truth of the Bible. We have to plant that stuff deep in their psyches so that it grows because there are, there's a world that is rapidly trying to snuff that truth out. And so... Jesus is teaching this parable and explaining to his disciples that if you want to withstand persecution, you have to have deep, deep roots. And so hear the encouragement of your Savior, not the criticism of this world. But it's not just, it's not just the evils out there that he's warning them against. There's persecution to come. But there's going to be good soil where you're, the, the, the wheat, the, the crop springs up But good soil is also going to be the right place for weeds to grow, for thorns to grow. You know, stuff only grows in fertile ground. And so if a seed can grow there and flourish, so can the thorn and the the thistles and the weeds. And so Jesus is saying, not only do you have to be on guard against the persecutions of the world, you have to be on guard against good things that will ensnare you. All right. In what he says here, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things, enter in and choke the word. Timothy says, or Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy, it's not that money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Money's not an evil thing. Money's a good thing. You need it. You need it to operate. But when your love of money becomes inordinate, it is the root of all evil. And so Jesus is putting before his disciples There are things that will tempt you to choke out the goodness of the word. 
There are things that don't just look terrifying and evil. There are things that look really good and tempting. And if you pursue that, it will choke you and fall away. He says it differently in Matthew. You can't serve God and money. And so, again, this isn't just like a New Testament invention. This is the story of God's people. You know, God told Israel to move into Canaan, a land that that he gave to them, a land flowing with milk and honey that other people planted, other people um, subdued, other people made fruitful. God said, go into the land of Canaan and not live at peace with the people there. He said, go in and destroy them. Go in, kill all of them. Go in, smash all their idols. And this is not because God is a racist colonializer. This is because God is going in and he understands that if there are idols, if there are cultic religions in there, that is an opportunity for the people to see that and want to be allured by that and to go and worship the other idols the way that they don't worship God. And so God isn't going in there to, to, in, a, in a racist, colonializing way. He's going in and saying, no, there will be no other love in your life. Because if there are other loves in your life, child of mine, those other loves will choke out your love for me. And so God loves his people so much that he's honest with them and says there are going to be things that tempt you away from loving me, but be on guard. Would you hear the value of Jesus and not the values of the world? And so discipleship, as you go throughout this life as a believer, is a matter of of knowing Christ, of having ears to hear, receiving Christ by faith, being formed by Christ through his word and spirit, through the way that he reveals himself to us in his word. It's not a matter, we said this a couple weeks ago, it's not this bootstrap matter of buckling down, cutting out the weeds in your own life necessarily, or digging down in the rocky ground in your own heart. It's a matter of letting the Spirit work at you to will and to work for His good pleasure. Jesus wants His disciples to bear fruit. He expects them to bear fruit. He expects the fruit process to be one fraught with difficulty, but He expects the Spirit to empower them to to live through that and to do it. It's not magic. Discipleship isn't magic, but it is the method and the process to which God calls his people. And so he promises his people that if there is good soil, there will be a yield 30 and 60 and 100 fold. A large crop's not immune to struggle, but it helps, helps throw it off. So there's, there's two kind of significant applications that I want to dig into a little bit. A lot of this is really application-based, and in fact... Uh, J.C. Ryle, an old um, 19th century guy, when he talks about this passage, he basically says, look, you don't really need to exposit this. All you need to do is offer like 13 applications for God's people because that's all this passage really is. Um, But I want to focus on two, two particular applications from here. And the first is this. Orthodoxy will lead to orthopraxy. Those are two very big words. Orthodoxy is right belief. Orthopraxy is right behavior. And so, right belief in Christ, having ears to hear and understanding that Christ is the Messiah who has broken into the world and following him, that's going to lead to right behavior. That's going to lead 
Um, generally speaking, it's not magic, right? It's the method that God has called us to. But if you leave orthodoxy, you're going to do all kinds of weird things. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that I delivered to you what was first of first importance, Jesus Christ and him crucified. The, the right belief of God's people is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is God incarnate, that he lived, died, and was resurrected for you. When you believe that, when you love him, that is going to constrain what you do. That is going to constrain what you do so that you're, the more you love Jesus, the less likely you will be to go out and sin in incredibly egregious ways. The same way, you know, Maddie and Ian just got married. They love each other very much. Because they are in covenant relationship, that's going to constrain how they act. Right? Ian's not going to go out there and just like go drinking in the bar every night and leave Maddie all by herself because she's like, no, Ian, I want you to come home. I love you. And you love me. And because of that, that's going to constrain his behavior and lead, hopefully, to right husband-type practices and being with his wife. So when you believe who Jesus is, what he says he is, that's going to tweak in your heart a desire to want to serve him. And if Jesus isn't God, if Jesus isn't divine, then it doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want. right? If Jesus isn't God, if there's not judgment at the close of the age... Eat, drink, be merry, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. But if you believe Jesus is who he says he is, that's going to constrain how you act and cause you uh, to live as a disciple. But the second one, and it's kind of related to this, a lot of times in the Christian life, we get really focused on the fruit that we don't have. We look at other people and we say, I wish I was more like that. I wish I prayed like her. I wish I read my Bible and studied my Bible like him. I wish I gave money like them. I wish I whatever. We look at the fruit in other people's lives and we long to have that fruit ourselves. But if you want encouragement as a disciple of Jesus, you do not need to go look at the fruit that your brothers and sisters have. You need to to focus in and look at the fruit that your God in Christ has given you. As a believer, as a disciple... We're all going to be fruitful in our own ways, in our own time. And the way that God works in me is not going to be the way that God works in you. What I have to be forgiven of is not what you have to be forgiven of. The sin struggles that I have are not going to be the same sin struggles that you all have. And so as a believer, we need to learn and to train ourselves to look at the fruit that we have, the way God has grown us, where God has brought us from, not what other people have and get worn out or discouraged because they have the fruit that we want. Because, look, if we're being honest, we want discipleship to be an instantaneous process so often. We want to stop sinning in that egregious way. We want to just feel better and get fixed. Um, we, We don't want to wait for God to blow the east wind or the west wind all night so that the sea would be parted. We want God to be magic and work instantaneously. Look, this is... There's a lot of ways we can think about this. There's a lot of kind of quick fixes and silver bullets we look for in our world. But I, I, I watched an interview this week, um, and it really bothered me. Is a, a young woman who um, had all kinds of things wrong with her. She borderline personality, a little autistic, um, and she felt really uncomfortable in her body as a, as, a, as a pubescent teen. And so she came to the conclusion, the Internet told her, she's obviously transgender, 
obviously transgender. She went to one uh, counselor, one therapist, got one letter, instantly started getting uh, shots, instantly started getting testosterone. As soon as she was 18, a year later, double mastectomy, instantly, because she was told you don't feel good in your body, we've got something to fix that. We've got shots you can take, we've got a surgery, you can have, you have a name that you can pick yourself, and your problems can go away instantly. That's the lie of the transgender movement. That's the lie of the world, that you can have whatever quick fix you want. We live in an on-demand culture, and it's not just transgenderism, it's literally anything. We live in an on-demand culture, and we expect that when we have something wrong with us, when we feel uncomfortable, when we feel unsure of ourselves, that there can just be a quick fix and it can go away. That's why the transgender movement is so insidious right now. It promises a quick fix to that which needs some time and process to work out. But look, y'all, God never promised us an instantaneous quick fix. He gave us the process of repentance and faith of discipleship, of ordinary things, of coming to church week after week after week, sitting under the word preached, singing together, confessing the truth of God to one another in love. There is nothing immediate about the process of discipleship. That is not how God works. He is not magic, but he works through means. Now, I don't, if you struggle with gender dysphoria, I'm not discounting that. If you have any kind of struggle, I'm not discounting that. We all have those the point I'm trying to make is that the world will tell us to look for a quick fix, but the gospel says the only fix is in Christ, and he gives us a process of discipleship, of repentance and faith that we can live our whole lives walking through. You live your whole life walking through Polycarp. 86 years he served his king. This is a lifelong process of repentance, faith, asking for forgiveness, believing the promises of God over and over and over again. And what Jesus is doing in this parable is he's encouraging his people. Look, it might take a while. Seeds are going to get planted. Some are going to grow. Some aren't. Some are going to get snatched away. But there will be, there absolutely will be, a harvest 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. He who began a good work in you will see it through to the day of completion. That is the promise. It's not always fast. It's not always easy. But it's what God promises his people. Now, what if my roots aren't deep? What if my roots aren't deep and I feel like I'm ready to get burnt up under the sun? What if there's thorns and thistles and weeds choking me right now and I got nothing? I can't do anything about it. What do I do then, pastor? Well, then I would say, don't look to Jesus just as an example. Look to him as your redeemer, as the one who came for you, as the one who broke into the world, who came into the world, who is despised and rejected by men for you. You see, this doesn't just illustrate the ministry of Jesus in terms of what he's done thus far. This illustrates the entirety of the ministry of Jesus, right? Jesus, who was confronted by Satan, Satan was tempting him away from his calling, and he said, no, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. Jesus, who grows up like a shoot before us, and in the face of temptation and suffering, he said, not my will, 
but yours be done, Father. I will go to the cross. Jesus, who was publicly beaten and had a crown of thorns wrapped around his head before he was choked out through asphyxiation on the cross. He came and did that for you. And right, and again, think about this. The cross, not an absurdly uh, exclusive manner of dying. That was an ordinary means of executing public enemies in the Roman Empire. And where was Jesus crucified? Between two other ordinary criminals. God takes what is ordinary and he works it out for extraordinary purposes. You see, we read the crossing of the Red Sea. We look back on that and we go, man, God is amazing. Look how great God is. He saves his people and he destroys the bad people. He saves his people. They sing songs, write poems, they dance, there's tambourines. And that makes sense to us. That makes sense to us. The good guys win, the bad guys lose. But here's what doesn't make sense to us. Jesus was the only truly innocent man that ever lived. And he's the one that God had go to the cross for me and for you. And and this is a really important aspect that we don't think about. He had to do that. Because sinful men hated him, rejected him, choked him out, choked the life out of him. Sinful men rejected him, and he went there. And God took the greatest act of evil, the most unjust thing that could ever be considered, and he put Jesus there so that all of his wrath, all of his, his, the consequence of sin, of your sin, of my sin, could be poured out on Christ so that we might grow up, that we might flourish, that we might bear fruit and multiply when we believe in him and understand that he is actually our redeemer, not just our example. And it's at that cross, that ordinary extraordinary event that the death blow is dealt to the kingdom of Satan. It is at that ordinary, extraordinary event that all of our sin, past, present, and future, is forgiven. The seed dies. The seed is broken open and it dies. But then he comes back to life. He is resurrected in power so that you and I might walk in the fullness of life, being forgiven and reconciled. So would you see, Mercy Church, that Christ in his messianic life, death, and resurrection exposes those who don't believe, but is an encouragement to those who believe. So Mercy Church, would you have ears to hear this good news today, that Christ loves you and gave himself for you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're not done. You're not done with this world. You're not done with us that you are at work in your people through the means that you've appointed so that we might be formed more to the image of your son, Jesus. We thank you that you who began a good work in your people will see it through to the day of completion and so that there will be a day that comes when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord, both those who are in your kingdom and those who are outside your kingdom, all to the praise of your glorious grace. Father, we confess that it's hard to be a disciple now. We want a quick fix. We want a magic bullet to transform us into the image of your son Jesus now, but we know that that won't happen until you come back and make all things new. So Father, until then, we we ask that you would teach us to suffer well, teach us to be quick to repent, quick to believe in you, quick to knit ourselves to the body of believers that we might be encouraged all the more, especially as we see the day drawing near. 
We love you, Jesus, and we pray this all in your holy and powerful name. Amen.